We're going through the books of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're going to do it in two halves, 1st Samuel and then 2nd Samuel. 1st Samuel, we're calling this series After God's Own Heart because the story is really about David and how he has chosen to be king because he is a man after God's own heart. So we're in chapter 27. We're actually almost done with this book. And what we're going to do is we're going to read, starting in verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter, we're going to read the first two verses of chapter 28. And then we'll pray and we'll get into it. 1 Samuel 27, 1. Now, pay attention as we read, uh, and hopefully you always do that, but especially today, there's something interesting about this chapter, something about this chapter we haven't seen in the entire book yet. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but just see as we read it, try to figure it out yourself, uh, what it is, okay? Just try to have that guess in your mind. 1 Samuel 27, starting in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maah, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the kings that David lived, or the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the ox, and the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon, God, and we, we recognize that man, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And God, I pray that as we come to your word this afternoon, as we sit under your scripture, God, that we would come with expectation, that we would come even with desperation, knowing, God, that we need a word from you. And God, I pray that you would help us to not be hearers only, God, but doers. God, that our lives would be transformed by what we read here, what we hear here. 
And God, I pray that you would do a work in us so that we might live for you. God, we need your spirit to open up our ears, to open up our eyes that are all too often blind, to open up our hearts to soften us. And God, I pray that when you do so, God, and we believe, God, that you would be gracious to us, that when you do so, God, I pray that we would respond in faith and in worship. God, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. God, we want our focus to be on him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever felt stuck? You know, maybe you weren't sure what you were supposed to do next in life, or maybe you knew what you wanted. Maybe you had some goals. Maybe you wanted to get out of your current situation and get to something else, but you had no realistic way of getting there. Or maybe you found yourself surrounded just by obstacles and difficulties, kind of hemmed in on every side. There's a writer named Edkar Karat. He's an Israeli. He lives in Israel. And he writes all these short stories. And I read one of these stories uh, that he told, or I guess I heard it out loud first, and then I read it. Um, but there's a story that he wrote called 30 Years, I'm a Cabbie. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole story for you, but let me just tell you kind of how it goes. It takes place in a cab, okay, or in a taxi, and the man riding usually, right, he wouldn't take a taxi. He's talking about how expensive it is. It's 350 shekels to get to Tel Aviv, but he's in a hurry, and he needs to get there as soon as possible, so he shelled out the money so that he could get there fast, so he paid for a taxi. And he says that his wife has just had a miscarriage, and there were complications, and she started bleeding out, and she passed out, and they had to give her an emergency blood transfusion. So he spent the night in the hospital, worried sick, but he's rushing home because they have a little kid at home that I guess they left with someone. I don't know all the details, but he's rushing home to get to his young son. Then he says three days before this, before this miscarriage happened, they had got other bad news. His father's cancer was back, and his only chance of survival was to remove basically his entire tongue and larynx. So they said, even with this, he might not survive. And if he does survive, then he's not going to be able to eat or talk afterwards. But his father wanted to go through with it, even though everyone else was kind of worried. His father said, all I need are my eyes and my heart to see my grandchildren grow up. So it was kind of an emotional thing. And he's sitting here, the guy's sitting here in the cab, rushing from one location to another. He's moving fast. He's going places geographically in life, but he's stuck. I mean, he really feels like, where do you turn? Where do you go when every place in the future that you can think of is a place you don't want to get to? Where every future destination is a life that you don't want to live? And meanwhile, the cabbie is just talking and talking and talking about how he's never been in an accident. He says, 30 years, I'm a cabbie. No accidents, not even a scratch, until five days ago. So he's telling this story. While this guy is stressed out, he's telling this long-winded story about how he had kind of love-tapped this other car, and there's a little scratch on the bumper, and they had tried to exchange information right there on the spot, but the guy said, just give me your number, and I'll call you later. He called him. He went to the garage, and they showed him a different car that was completely damaged, and they said, you're going to pay for this, 2,000 shekels. So he's like, can you believe it? 30 years, I'm a cabbie. This has never happened to me. I'm such a good driver, blah, 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 blah. How could they rip me off this way? I'm getting swindled. And the guy in the back is just nodding politely. He's trying to just 
kind of listen, but he doesn't want to hear this. And finally, after the third, can you believe it? He says, actually, I can believe it. Like, can you stop talking? Like, how about this? And he just unloads on the guy. He says, how about we go to an ATM? I pull out 2,000 shekels. I pay for the car. And then you get, in exchange, a father with cancer and a wife in the hospital. How about that? How about that? See, the thing is, and we'll get to this at the end, but the thing is, when you're stuck, when things in your life aren't going good, when there's pressure on you, it's hard to think of anything else. See, the thing is, when you're stuck, it's almost as if nothing else matters. And you know this. I mean, I think I knew this last week when I was sick. When you're sick, right, when you're, you know, actually, I'm not going to, this isn't me, okay? This is not autobiographical. But if you're vomiting, if you have like a high fever, 103, something like that, you aren't thinking about your problems. You're not thinking about how the HOA fee is going up anymore. You're not thinking about how you need to clean up the closet and kind of clear out space. You aren't thinking about politics. All you're thinking about is trying to feel better. That's what you're yearning for. And the truth is, this is how our lives are in the big picture sense all the time. We might not be stuck 24-7, but we find ourselves moving from stuck to stuck to stuck. Churches are full of people who feel stuck on Sunday afternoons, stuck in singleness. That's what's dominating your mind. Or stuck in a marriage that's really hard. Stuck in a job you hate or stuck without a job at all. Stuck with a deteriorating body, stuck with a wayward child, stuck in the consequences that your younger self earned for you. I mean, you know why you're in the situation that you're in, but it still doesn't feel good. Churches are full of stuck people. And the question is, first of all, how about you? I mean, I could get up here and I could talk about theology. Right? We could get into the exegesis of this text, and maybe it would be interesting for you because you're a Christian, maybe, maybe you care about the Bible. But in your mind, in the back of your mind, maybe in your heart of hearts, there are concerns that really bother you right now, and they distract you. Maybe you feel like right now is an escape, right? I'm going to learn about some stuff, but it hasn't really, it hasn't really uh, made it real for you that what you're hearing right now, that what God has for you in his word might actually speak to those things. There's a disconnect. And the thing is, we come to a text in 1 Samuel where I think we have to address this. Because in 1 Samuel, and I think God makes it easy sometimes, we've come to a text in 1 Samuel where David feels stuck. I mean, you heard the story, maybe you didn't understand exactly what's going on in here, but David feels stuck. David feels like there's no way forward in his life. And so feeling stuck between a rock and a hard place, he really feels like something has to give. And David makes this decision to leave his homeland, to leave the land that he was anointed to be king over, to go to the Philistines, to go to the enemy of Israel. Now, let this text be a case study for you. Because this text really is a text about what happens when real people don't know exactly what to do, or they have problems that seem to dominate their thoughts and it pushes them a certain way. This is a text about what stuckness does to our minds and how even the best of us can slip up and stumble. And I know I'm prone to hyperbole, but this might be the craziest passage in the book. 
so far, uh, along with every other one. Full disclosure, that's my goal, okay? Like, I study it, I sit with the passage until I subjectively feel like it's the craziest passage. So that's why it's going to be that way until I trip and fall and we have my funeral. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. We'll look at this text in three parts, okay? Under three headings. First, we'll look at the choice, then the confusion, then the consequence. First, the choice. The choice. Because it all starts with a choice that David makes to leave. We all make choices every day. The question is, what goes into those choices? That's what we're going to see here. Verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David makes the choice to run away. Now, he's been running for a long time now. Saul has been chasing him for years, for chapters. But here it's not just to kind of get away a little bit further. Here it's a choice to leave completely, okay, to go out of the promised land and to go to the land of the Philistines. And this is a surprising turn of events, shocking even if you know the story, if you've been with us. If you haven't, here's why it's shocking. One, David already tried this. Do you remember that? Early on, when Saul was starting to kind of turn against him, he went to this exact place. He went to Gath. He went to the city of Gath. He went to Achish. And it didn't exactly turn out that good. In fact, they were so suspicious of him, they were even going to maybe kill him. So he acted like a crazy man so that they kicked him out and he ran away. But this plan didn't work. Two, the Philistines were Israel's arch enemies. Okay, if there was one group of people that would automatically be predisposed to be against him, it was the Philistines. And David is destined to be king of Israel, so it seems kind of backwards and weird. And then three, just listen to the words that came, well, I guess not out of his mouth, but out of his heart. It doesn't sound like David. The past three chapters feature three temptations. Three times David was given really the enticing opportunity to take his fate into his own hands. But either by conviction or by the gracious intervention of God, he didn't. He could have killed Saul. He could have killed Nabal. He could have killed Saul again. And if he had killed Saul, then he would have ended all of his problems right then and there. But he didn't do it. Why? Because it was wrong. We talked about this the past three weeks. He didn't end his problems. He didn't take matters into his own hands because he knew that it would go against God. David is a man of incredible conviction. We've seen that. What else have we seen? We've seen that David is a man of incredible faith, almost breathtaking faith. I was just reading through the book of 1 Samuel again, just the entire thing to kind of get myself situated. And I read chapter 17, uh, and it's been a while since we've been in there, but chapter 17 is where David fights Goliath, the most famous event in his entire life. And do you remember what he said and how he was talking? It kind of struck me. Okay, 1 Samuel 17, 37. Listen to this. The Lord, he's talking to Saul. Everyone's scared of Goliath. Everyone thinks that you're going to die if you go fight him. And David says this, as like a kid, basically. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Will deliver me. I've been delivered so many times by God. Of course it's going to happen again. The trust, the confidence the faith. But here, here in this text, listen to his words again. The first words 
Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. I'm eventually going to lose. I'm eventually going to die. The word perish here is translated elsewhere as swept away. I can't take these waves anymore. Eventually I'm just going to be lost at sea. This isn't faith. This is despair. He's so sure that something bad is going to happen to him. And the question is, what happened to that faith? What happened to that boldness and that conviction? What happened to David? This is how it starts. And what happened to David is nothing crazy, at least compared to what we've seen so far, even recently. What happened to David is just the accumulation of real-life experiences. You know, I had a friend. We kind of lost touch over the years. I haven't seen him in a while. But we met when we were in college. And uh, I think I was 20 and he was 18. So I was like, who is this kid? Right? Because I was so mature. And I was in my 20s. Anyway, I really did think that. Who is this kid? And I really felt that he was a guy that maybe even could be a pastor someday or something like that. Because we had met kind of through church things. And he was just really passionate about God, you know, about ministry. He served a lot. He, was, uh, he cared about sound doctrine and theology and the word. Really what I felt like is he had a fire for God. Um, but I saw him more recently, and he's, he's okay, okay, he's going to church still, still serves. Uh, he's still a Christian, okay, nothing, this isn't a criticism of him, and I won't say who it is. But I saw him um, right before he moved out to Texas, and I was like, I'm going to ask this guy if he wants to move with me. Even though I haven't seen him in a while, I was like, we could use a guy with fire like this to church plant, right? We're going to move. And he was just like, nah, I'm good. He really was just like, nah, I'm good. I was like, I understand, man. But what I really thought was, and, and my thought, and maybe I was being judgmental, and if I was, I think I was wrong. But I thought, what happened to you? Like, what happened to your fire? Like, you changed, bro, you know, like you're not the same person that you were before. Now, I know him, right, and we're cool, and he's living for God, I think, but the thing that happened was nothing crazy. It was just real life. He got married, started a family, got a job, started a career, got older, started needing more sleep biologically. It just got harder, and again, I don't judge my brother harshly. I understand it happens to all of us. Maybe it's happened to you, I feel like sometimes it happened to me. I look back on when I first became a Christian, and I was like, dude, I was so on fire for God, telling everyone who had even one ear about Jesus. You know, I was trying to, like, serve in any single way I could at church, even if I wasn't good at it. I did a lot of things that I wasn't good at. I woke up early with excitement to read the Bible, but then real life happened. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I think we need to look at David through the lens of real life. See, for him, real life wasn't even just these things. It wasn't just growing up, getting married, all these things. For him, real life actually meant that he was on the run all the time, constantly. He had to go on the move to escape a murderous maniac. He had to live in caves. He had to live in the wilderness. To say he was stressed would be a huge understatement. And now, after chapter upon chapter of going, uh, going away from Saul, after all of these times where Saul flip-flopped between loving him and then hating him and all of these things, David is exhausted, and this allows this thought to creep into his mind. Saul is never going to stop. 
See, for us, we have like a week in between these events, right? At least there are chapter breaks. But for David, this is just his life. Every single day, he's being worn down by the relentless pursuit of Saul. And see, I love this chapter just for this one verse. It's not the most well-known chapter of the book, but I think for most of us, you kind of live in the real world and we have things going on and then you hear the pastor say just go out there and evangelize to everybody and make sure you're reading the entire bible in a year and do all these things sign up for this event serve in this way it's it can feel like church is disconnected from reality don't you know how busy i am don't you know how much stress i'm under at work don't you know how crazy it is with little kids at home it feels like there's a disconnect but i feel like this chapter just puts it right out there that life can be hard for people Even the heroes of the faith, quote-unquote. I mean, like David, usually, at least in this chapter, usually we don't have miraculous intervention happen to us, right? We have a problem and God just does something, a supernatural miracle. Usually, like in this chapter, we don't have a direct word from a prophet. Usually what we have is our problems and our thoughts, We just sit around and we're thinking about how hard life has been, the things that are pressing on us, and we just turn them over and over in our minds. This chapter teaches us and shows us that David is a real person. His stress didn't end at 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. He's tired. One commentator I read said this, hunted, tracked, and attacked by Saul, treacherously exposed, making thrilling escapes and executing daring escapades, but nine chapters full of high blood pressure narrative. It's the stuff that makes great movies, but it takes its toll on real people. And see, this is why David makes the choice that he makes. Kind of outwardly, you could just say, okay, he just moves a little bit. He goes to the Philistines, but there's so much that goes into this. The entire story has been building to this point. David is tired. He feels the pressure, and we have to understand that when we feel the pressure, it pushes us a certain way, and if we're not careful, we'll end up making decisions you never thought that you would make. I mean, David, it's like he's getting swept away. Listen to how he talks. I'm just gonna die. This is the only thing that I can do, and he chooses the Philistines. Now, Before we talk about this decision and the fallout of this decision and even evaluating it, is it good or is it bad? There's one detail we haven't talked about enough, and this is key. Look at verse 1 again. Then David said, where? In his heart. Not to the men around him, not to God in prayer, in his heart. If there's one theme that predominates 1 Samuel, it's the heart. Now, we haven't talked about this in a while, but to the Hebrew mind, the heart was a very important thing. See, for us, what is the heart? It's the organ that pumps blood. Maybe we're talking about our emotions. And for the Hebrews, that was part of it too, but it was way more than that. Basically, the heart, when they talk about the heart, they're talking about who you are on the inside, really who you really are, right? Because you can do things outwardly and you could fake everyone, else, uh, fake everyone out. You could be a hypocrite. You could be someone who serves a lot, who helps every old lady across the street. You could give a lot of your money away, but it comes out of maybe a proud heart. God sees that. So the heart is who you really are. It's your true motivations, your concealed feelings, your internal thought processes. So the text is saying that David has a conversation in his heart. It's saying that this all started with a dialogue between David and David. 
We are given his internal thoughts. And this is how he feels. This is what he thinks. And maybe most importantly, what this tells us is what he was focused on. He's thinking about Saul. Saul is living rent-free in his head. He's stuck on the Saul problem. And here's the point. Here's the point. Our heart behind our choices, our reasoning, our motivations, our feelings, and more so what our hearts are focused on, they determine our choices. If you want to know what direction you're going to go in, listen in on the dialogue that's taking place between you and you. It's really important to evaluate what's our inner conversation like. And maybe that's kind of a weird concept for you, but just think about what do you think about? What dominates your mind? What sermons do you preach to your own heart? You know, some of you might remember Judith Durham. I had no idea who that was, but I looked her up, and she was the lead singer of this Australian pop group that was popular back in the day called The Seekers, and they were really the first Australian group to ever make it big outside of Australia. Okay, so that's why she's famous. Um, But there was an interview she gave years later, and it was really, really insightful as to how this inner dialogue can take over. She said, okay, so she was beloved by thousands, maybe millions of people worldwide. But she said, looking back, she had major body image issues. I think back in the day, they didn't even have that same vocabulary, but now that she's older, she's talking about it. She said, no matter how much weight she lost, she always felt too big. And of course, this is very common today, even still. But this is what she said exactly. She said, I was just consumed by it. You could go to a doctor and ask for diet pills, but I didn't know if there was anybody I could have talked to who could have changed inside my head, who could have convinced me it's all right to look like this. Didn't matter what other people said. Didn't matter how many people loved her. She said, in my own mind, in my own conversation with myself, I had convinced myself that this was bad. No one could have changed inside her head what was already there. See, the arguments we make to ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves, the words we don't say with our mouths but in our hearts, they are insanely powerful. Our choices are not random. Our choices are informed by our internal conversation. So let me ask you, in light of this, do you have, for example, relationship problems? Are there people you don't get along with? And then ask yourself, what kind of thoughts do you think about these people before you see them? What kind of thoughts do you think about people at all? I mean, I know a lot of people who are super nice, right, bubbly, friendly, but then when a certain person walks out of the room, everything changes. Oh, let me tell you about that person. That person is trash, you know, something like that. Are you often complaining about what other people do? Do you judge how people look, attributing the worst motives to how others act? Maybe that person doesn't leave the room. Maybe you never say it out of your mouth, but you're constantly preaching that same message to your hearts. Are you discontent in life? Are you always searching for that next thing? What do you think about? What do you fill your mind with? Do you think about all the other things you'd rather have? Do you look at people with envy? Do you dwell on the flaws of everything and everyone in your current life? Whatever you think about, whatever you talk to yourself about, it'll own you. Your character and your choices will rearrange themselves around the conversations that you hold within your heart with yourself. So as Proverbs 4.23 says, 
Keep your heart with all uh, vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Be careful what you allow to roam free in your heart because your entire life's coming out of that. David's choice flows from his inner conversation. And we're going to come back to this, but we're going to go to the second point the confusion. The confusion. Most of the text is going to be here in the second point. I'm just putting that out there, the confusion. And the reason we're calling this point the confusion isn't because David is confused or because Akish is confused or any person in here is confused. We're calling it the confusion because it's a confusing chapter. There are signs that what David does here are actually good things, and there are signs that what he does here are some of the worst things he's ever done. The text, unlike other texts in 1 Samuel, it doesn't tell us if this is good or bad. It doesn't judge him, nothing like that. There's a mixture, there's kind of a grayness to it. Let me show you, verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. David, he takes immediate action. He crosses the border between the promised land and the land of the Philistines. Now, a quick word about the Philistines. We haven't talked about them in a while either. They were probably the major antagonist of this book. I mean, they are the enemies of Israel at this time in history. The enemies. They were dangerous. They were a people of war. And they basically were a country made up of five major cities. Okay, they called, it, they called it the Philistine Pentopolis, five cities that kind of ruled everything. And each city had its own king or warlord, and they were kind of like the ruling body. And Gath was one of these cities. So Gath was notable for one, being the city of the Philistines that's closest to Judah, closest to David. Two, the place where Goliath was from. And three, also the place where David tried to go earlier in the book. So why is he going here? Why is he going to the same dangerous place, to the same dangerous king? Because things have changed. I mean, for one, David is desperate, and desperate people do desperate things. But also David is different. David is more well-known now as being an enemy of Saul. We've seen this in the past couple chapters. Saul has taken a break from fighting the Philistines to go after David. So that's what's going on here. David also has an entire group of people around him, a mercenary fighting force. So the Philistines know that David maybe could be useful at this point in time. And of course, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Verse 3. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. So Achish this time welcomes him and his family and his crew and their families, probably a couple thousand people, verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Okay, so let's talk about this real quick. What did David want to escape from Saul? What was the plan? To go to the Philistines because according to David's reasoning, Saul wouldn't pursue him that far. So did the plan work? Yeah, it did. There's just one problem. Now he's living with the Philistines. Verse 5. Each decision leads to another one. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So David asked for a place to live. The Philistines give it to him. He wants to be away from the royal city, which is probably good. So he can't be watched so closely by Achish. 
and they give him this place called Ziklag. Now, even this is gray, because David is putting down roots in enemy territory. That's not good. But then, if you know what Ziklag is, I know a lot of you guys, it's your favorite biblical city. But Ziklag, if you go back to Joshua 15, you don't have to turn there. Joshua 15, when Israel first came into the promised land, God gave them territory and he listed out cities that were supposed to be theirs. And if you look at chapter 31, hidden in plain sight, one of the cities that Israel was supposed to have that they never got was a city, a little town, country town called Ziklag. So David, in a sense, takes Israelite territory back. So maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. Keep reading, verse 7. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So he's safe, which is good. He got Ziklag, which is good. But he's there for over a year. So what did he do during that time? Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. So what David did was basically go on these raids and take things from people. He would kill all the men and the women, and then he would take the spoils and bring them back to Achish. And then verse 10, when Achish asked about it, David would say he had made a raid against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Kenites. So when David rolled up to Gath with some more camels or cloaks or whatever, Achish would ask, where do you get these? And David would bring up the territory of Israel. Negev, it just means dry place or desert. So he said, I went to this desert area and he kind of implied that he was raiding his own people even though he wasn't. He didn't technically lie, but he was deceiving Achish. So there's obviously some bad here. David, the man after God's own heart, is being deceptive. But then you look up who these people are. The Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. We don't know much about the Gerzites, but the Geshurites and the Amalekites were ancient enemies of Israel. In fact, God had declared holy war against the Amalekites. He told Saul to wipe them out, and Saul had failed as the first king. So David's raids are actually in line with God's will, you could say. But then verse 11, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. So what is David's custom? What is the text telling us? His custom, even though he's killing maybe the enemies of Israel, his custom is to kill in order to cover up his lies. Now, if you're familiar with the David story, does that sound at all familiar? Maybe your alarm is going off a little bit. Kill in order to hide the truth. Kill in order to cover up deception. That is his custom. That is what he was doing here, and we're going to see him do it way worse with Bathsheba and Uriah. So we have a mixed bag. And commentators, they argue about this. When you really get into the text and study it, they're like, okay, is this good or bad? Because the text, unlike other texts, doesn't tell us. On the one hand, David is clearly being dishonest. He's gone to enemy territory. But on the other hand, maybe it's teaching, hey, when you have lemons, make lemonade. You know, he had to go to the Philistine lands, and at least he's trying to be faithful. Or maybe it's teaching you shouldn't presume upon God right? Like if you're having a hard time, you can't just wait for him to miraculously intervene. You just got to do the best with what you got. I mean, are you confused at all? 
about what this text means or what we're supposed to learn from this, if you are, take a step back for a second. Let's go back to the choice again. So the first domino that fell that led to everything else, verse 1. Look at what David says. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Question, was there really nothing better for him to do? I mean, I think, you know, maybe he is prone to hyperbole as well. But is there nothing better? Can we hold him to his own words? I mean, he could have gone back to Moab, where his parents are, where he has family. He could have asked Gad, the prophet, what God would want them to do. He could have asked for a billion dollars or superpowers. I mean, aren't there better options? Nothing? See, there's a difference between how you subjectively feel in the moment and what is objectively true. In fact, case in point, turn with me to Genesis 25 real quick. Genesis 25. You can keep your place here, but Genesis 25. You might know this story. It's kind of a children's book story. Genesis 25. Look at verse 29. Jacob and Esau. This is early, early in Israel's history. Genesis 25, 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright anew. Esau said, I am about, or sell me your birthright now, excuse me. Esau said, I'm about to die, of course, or of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, we don't got a lot of time to talk about birthrights, but let me just say it was important. It's a big deal in the family. This is like his inheritance. But he's so hungry one day, coming in from the field. Jacob's making this stew. I don't know how good it smelled, but it must have smelled pretty good. I remember I saw an ad one time for stew where it said, good enough to trade your birthright for. And it's just one of those funny things that only a pastor could love. He's just so hungry in the moment. That's all he could think of. So he traded what was long-term way more important and way more valuable for a bowl of food because he was rumbling in his tummy in that moment. Now go back to the text. You can go back to 1 Samuel for Samuel 27. But the thing is, David is so focused on what he wants right now. He's so focused on how he feels in this moment. And so what does he do? He makes a plan to get what he wants and he gets it, but look at the cost. He ends up in a place that I don't think he ever would have wanted to end up at. Look at the ways he has to compromise his character. In the next point, we'll look at the consequence of his decision. But quickly, before we move on, here's the thing for you guys. And for me, I preach to myself. Do you do this? Do we do this? Have you ever gotten so fixated on what you want right now? In the moment? How you feel right now? That you compromised? Or that you sacrificed what was more important? Because the truth is, this happens 
literally all the time. Someone's probably doing it right now, maybe even in this room. You wanted a promotion so bad at work. Is wanting a promotion bad? No. It's not sinful. It's not evil. But you wanted it so bad that you missed how many family events? That you sacrificed your relationship with your kids at the altar of your own success? Is that worth it? Again, there's nothing wrong with working hard or moving on up in the world. It's not good versus evil. It's what I felt like I wanted right now versus what, in the big scheme of things, is more important. Or speaking about kids, what about wanting them to be safe and secure and successful? I mean, so many parents feel this way. I know every parent is like, I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I'll never do that. And then once they have kids, they rev up the engine of the helicopter. (laughs) That's how it goes. It's good. Safety is good. Success is good. But the question is, at what cost? Some of you guys are down the road of this a little bit. Did you push them so hard that they resent you now? Did you shelter them so much that they have no friends at all? Did you put them in so many activities that they never had time for church and for God, and now you're wondering why God isn't important to them at all? And sure, they're successful and secure and safe, whatever. You got what you wanted, but the question is, was that the better? Was that the right? Was that the most important thing? And I'm saying this because it happens all the time. And the thing we see in this text is that David got what he wanted, but it wasn't the most important thing. See, I don't think this text actually is that confusing when you really step back and look at it. Sure, David did some good stuff, but let me ask you, where does it come from? Does it come from a desire to please God or a desire to save his own hide? Romans 14.23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So tell me, where's the faith in 1 Samuel 27? And this is so convicting. I preach to myself, like I said. I mean, so many times I do things for God, but it's actually for me. And the crazy thing about this text is that the things that David does that are right, they don't patch up the wrong choice that he made in the beginning or the wrong heart from which it came. See, we can make wrong decisions based entirely on ourselves with no faith in God at all, not even really thinking about him. And then we try to just slap God in at the end, at a pinch of God, slap a little Christianity into it, and then call it a day and think we're living for God. No, dude. If it doesn't come from faith, it's sin. And we see this so often, right? I want to be rich so that I can be generous and give to the church. Okay, I know that there are some rich people who do want that, and I'm not speaking to you, but I'm just talking about how we can mask our greediness with these pious words. We want to be rich for ourselves, and sure, we'll give a little bit to God later on. I want to serve. Maybe people you want to serve at church, but it's because you want people to think that you're such a great servant. It's all about your own reputation. I know a lot of people in church who do it because they need to do it. They need people to thank them. They need to be needed and wanted. It's not for God. And God knows. We do this kind of stuff all the time. Adding a bit of God at the end doesn't change the fact that our hearts were wrong. You can almost hear it in David, the inner battle. At least I killed Israel's enemies, God. At least I got Ziklag, God. But this whole time, you were doing this in service of the Philistines. 
Commentators point out that just as David went over the geographical boundary between Israel and Philistia, he also stepped over a spiritual boundary. He stopped placing his faith in God, which he had been doing all this time, and placed it in the Philistines. But you know what? I don't even think that's right. I think that he crossed the border even earlier, before he even took one step, when in his heart he said there is nothing better. I must do this. Before he placed his faith in the Philistines, he had placed his faith in David. And this leads to the final point, the consequence. The consequence. just want to talk about where David ends up. Because sure, the threat of Saul is gone for now, but look at verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Now, we don't know if this actually happened. It probably didn't because he wasn't actually attacking his own people. But Achish thinks this. And it's so interesting, the wording here. Does the chapter end with God saying he is pleased with David? No. It actually ends with the pagan king Achish talking about how pleased he is. Does the text end with David as the servant of the Lord, as other texts have ended? No. It ends with him in the service of Achish again. God is glaringly missing at the end of this chapter. Now, I said at the beginning, right, look at this chapter as I read it. Pay attention to what's different about this. In the first 26 chapters of this book, God, predictably, is mentioned in every single chapter. Someone talks about him. God does something. God says something. People are thinking about him or serving him, whatever. God is there. But in chapter 27, did you notice that God is not mentioned one time in the entire chapter? No one talks about him. David doesn't think about him. Now, does this mean God actually disappeared? Of course not. God was always there. But what happened was God disappeared from his mind. God disappeared from his thoughts. God disappeared from his heart. David's thoughts were so filled with Saul, with the situation that he was stuck in, that he wasn't thinking about God at all. See, before David placed his faith in the Philistines, we have to understand he had already taken his eyes off of God and looked to himself. How can I save myself? And see, for you guys, we could talk about all these different things that we need to grow in, trying to be better husbands and wives, parents, talking about stewardship, talking about evangelism, talking about growing in prayer, talking about serving more, talking about greeting people at church because we need to do that. Romans says, welcome one another, just go be obedient to that. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't start with God, if you're not someone who wants to live for God at the core of your being, then none of those other things matter at all. You know, I read this story about George Mallory not even, not even really a story. You know who that is, George Mallory? He might have been the first man to ever climb up to Mount Everest, but we don't know because on the way down, he died. And they found him like 75 years later up there, like frozen. They recovered his body. It's really sad. He was like a famous guy, and he went up there, and we don't know if he made it, but he never made it back down. His son, John, was three years old when he died on Mount Everest. And they wrote this book about George Mallory's life, and they had John write the foreword to it. Um, and of course, he's proud of his dad. His dad is a hero, a pioneer. Uh, he went on this crazy expedition. He was so brave, et cetera, et cetera. But he said 
in the forward, he said, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero, as some people perceive him to be. He, I would trade all of that if I could have just known him for a little bit. See, as we talked about in the previous point, there are some things that are more important than other things. And here's the thing with David. For David, it was all about getting away from Saul. But I think if there's one message that this text preaches, it's that there are more important things than getting away from Saul. In fact, there are more important things than staying alive. If the Bible is true, then you know it to be true. And yet, Christian, think of the chapters of your life. Think of the things that you've done, the decisions that you've made. Think about your past. Think about your present. Think about the future that you envision. How many of the chapters of your life are missing God entirely? Completely. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28, and then we'll land this plane. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So David ends the story, this little foray into Philistine territory, completely trapped. The final consequence of his action, of, of a year plus worth of actions, is that he finds himself even more stuck than before. Because now Akish trusts him. Akish is going to put him into battle against his own people. He's going to actually have to compromise everything that he cares about. It's funny. Akish says, you know you're going to fight with us, right? Because you're on our side now. And he's like, you know what I could do. What are you supposed to say? And we know what David can do. The question is, what will David do? What will he do? David, in trying to be clever and trying to save himself, has jumped out of the frying pan and right into the fire. He's set against his own people. Why? Because he didn't put God first. You know, in life, you're going to be stuck many times. Problems just keep coming again and again. You will face situations where you won't know what to do. And what you need to do, maybe, will be very hard I don't know exactly what you should do in every single situation. The Bible doesn't give us, you know, detailed, personal instructions for every day of our lives. But it does tell us where we have to start. Our inner dialogue can't be devoid of God. It has to start with Him. So think about what you want. You want a husband or a wife or a better marriage, a better job, early retirement, a child or two or three or zero, money, comfort, health, to make a name for yourself, to have a legacy, to see the gospel go forth, to build something, to be happy even. Literally none of those things are wrong in of themselves, but if they are the thing for you, then you've already started off on the wrong foot. If they are the thing, then nothing you do, none of the choices you make will be right, even if you try to add God in at the end. These things have become so big in your life that God is an afterthought or not even a thought. And you have to understand, you have to see this in David's life, that you will eventually compromise your character and you will find yourself in a situation where you are against God and not for him. Eventually, always, guaranteed. Now, you might be wondering, what if I've already made bad decisions? 
What if I haven't been living for God at all? I've already crossed over. I'm already reaping the consequences of what I've done. Does this mean there's no hope? Not at all. What David does in this text is he takes his eyes off of God. But the truth is we all do at times. There are consequences to David's actions. But God's not done with David yet. And spoiler alert, God does get him out of this pickle. And spoiler alert, David already was a sinner before he committed the sin. So turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Because David wrote this psalm, I want you to hear this from his own words. Psalm 103, look at verse 10. Psalm 103.10. Speaking of God, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You could stop there. Our text showed that David also struggled. The man after God's own heart wasn't perfect all the time. But God doesn't rip the kingdom away from him. You know why? It's grace and mercy. Even though the text doesn't talk about God because David's not thinking about God, we can think about God and we can see how God is responding to the situation and God doesn't punish David according to what his sins deserve. And that's how God is. If you're here today and you've been going down a bad path, it's not too late to turn back to him. Whatever you've done that's wrong, God can take that away as far as the east is from the west. God is a God that doesn't treat us according to what our sins deserve. Praise God. We'll close here. We'll end with this story. The guy was in the taxi, remember? 30 years, I'm a cabbie. The guy snapped at him, right? He said, how about we trade? And that shuts the cabbie up, of course, Right? It's like, okay, my problems aren't as big as your problems. It's perspective. And it's all silent. It's all awkward. And they miss the exit to Tel Aviv. So the cabbie's like, okay, I missed the exit. Let me just pull over here onto the side of the highway. The guy's like, what are you doing? You know, like, you're going to get into your first accident. And he's like, 30 years, I'm a cabbie. Never gotten in an accident before. He starts pulling over on the freeway and then impacts. Glass shatters. The car goes flying. They got into the first real accident this cabbie has ever gotten into. And the car just like flips. But thankfully, even though the cab is totaled, they're both okay. They barely any a scratch on them. The ambulance shows up and the police and everything. They want to take them to the hospital just to see if they're okay, no internal injuries or anything. And they put them in the same ambulance. And the guy's like, oh man, I got to ride with this guy again. But they're riding, and when they're riding, his dad calls him just to see how things are going, right? He's like, hey, how's everything going? And the guy starts breaking down. He just starts crying, and the father's like, what's wrong? Are you okay? And he just kind of forces a smile, and he's like, everything's good. And that's the end of the story. And I was like, what is this story about? You know, like I was trying to think about it. I actually read it a couple times just to think about it. And even though it's open-ended, I think— I understand what he was trying to say. I think I understand. I think it was perspective for him too at the end. 
Because he was so worried about the future, like what's going to happen, what are we going to do? And then in that moment, he realized that you just got to be thankful for life. You got to be thankful that my father can talk right now, that he still has his tongue. Thankful that we could talk on the phone. See, there are some things that are more important than the things that make us feel stuck. There are some things that are more important than the things that tend to fill up our minds and our hearts. I know you guys got problems. I'm not trying to minimize your problems. But what I'm trying to do is to put them in perspective. Don't let whatever it is, even if it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you, crowd God out from the center of your hearts. You need to fill your thoughts with God. Let God be the reason for everything that you do. And when you have the most important thing right, I don't know what it's going to look like, but everything will fall into place because what's the alternative? And as we read in the scripture reading, I tell you, don't be anxious about tomorrow, what you will eat, what you will drink, or even your life. God knows you need those things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and him and everything else will be added to you. Let's pray. God, we come before you this afternoon. And God, we give our lives to you. God, you created us for the Christians here. God, you saved us the cost of your son's life. God, there are more important things. There are eternal things. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to put aside our distractions. God, I pray that you would help us, God, to let go, God, of the things that dominate our minds that aren't you. God, help us to turn away from idols, even turn away from ourselves and trying to save ourselves. And God, I pray that we would look to you. God, I pray that we would have an eternal perspective. God, I pray that you would help us to keep the most important things, the most important things by your grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.